Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Elias Chapellis, and a new old friend, Patrick Tui, making his return to the Show Me Institute podcast. Patrick, welcome back. Thank you very much. I, a triumphant return, I think you should say. Triumphant return. Um, and to celebrate, uh, Governor Parson gave a speech. Uh, <laughs> and in that speech, he outlined his priorities for the year, the budget, and our budget expert, Elias Chapellis, um, was hanging on every word. Elias, uh, what were your key takeaways? Uh, the key takeaway is that we're going to spend more money. Um, I think the governor said he's not done yet, and I think that is he's not done spending money. So we're going to expand child care. Uh, by that, he means um, you know spend over $100 million of state general revenue on the state's subsidized child care program, taking over some of what used to be a primarily federal program. There's going to be three new tax credits that the legislature is looking at, looking at something like $70 million per year um, to incentivize employers and child care centers, all types of different you know incentives that seem like a strange place for the government to be investing. They're going to be um, expanding pre-K um, across the state. And um, one of the things that bothered me the most, I think I criticized it last year on the podcast, was the... Um, they're making permanent or wanting to make permanent this uh, teacher pay prop up thing that the state's been doing where the state has created a fund. Um, the state law basically uh, sets the baseline teacher pay previously has been uh, 25,000. Well, the state would say, okay, well, let's raise it to, you know, $35,000, $40,000. But for the school districts that were paying teachers below that, the state will pay the difference, and um, that was previously just the, you know, idea that was temporary. You know, something to kind of help teachers on the bottom there. Well, uh, the fact that I learned from the governor during his speech was that um, after offering this, seventy percent of Missouri school districts are now taking advantage of that. So what you see is this sort of perverse incentive that the state has now created, where school districts are not going to want to be raising the floors themselves, you know, previously something that they had all the control in the world over of how much they paid their teachers. Well, now the, now they're going to want to just keep that minimum, um, at the statewide minimum and then let the state pick up the difference. And so the state is going to be trying to make that permanent. Um, they will be giving, um, employees raises again. So, you know, it's a great time to be a state employee. And so we're looking at roughly a $53 billion budget, um, with 14, roughly 15 billion general revenue being spent, which um, for those at home that are keeping track, uh, the state doesn't generate $15 billion in uh, general revenue per year. We bring in roughly $13.5 billion. So the governor is spending some of the surplus we've accumulated. Um, and um, But as he reminded us, he will be keeping some, but uh, not, not too much to look forward to in the uh, speech, I, I didn't think. Yeah, and um, Patrick, I'm going to bring you in here. So that is something that the, the governor outlined this long list of spending priorities, said he's going to spend a bunch of money, and then he said, but we are going to have about a billion and a half left in the piggy bank after it's all said and done, so we're good. And up at showmeinstitute.org, you have a blog post. And uh, what are your thoughts on the this surplus? Well, it, it doesn't exist. I had the opportunity to speak with uh, Sheila Weinberg at Truth and Accounting. Her organization does a great job of examining the fiscal health of all the states and uh, most of the large cities in the country. And the point that she makes is uh, governors and mayors across the country, uh, regardless of their political identification or their ideology, use um, 
an accounting gimmick to claim that they have a surplus. And, and what they use is called cash basis accrual. And, and basically what it allows them to do is say, uh, we have a surplus based on the cash we have on hand at the moment, rather than consider the long-term obligations they've taken on. For example, funding state employee pensions. Um, an example might be if, if you and I did cash basis uh, accounting, we would be able to claim a loan as income and we'd be able to ignore the long-term debt we've taken on as a result of that loan and wait to make a payment until the end of the year in order to show, well, look at all this money we've got, when in reality, all that money is debt. And uh, again, the governor isn't alone in doing this. It was just something that was disheartening because we, we're not running a surplus. We don't spend less than we take in. We have got debts as far as the eye can see. And, uh, you know, we can disagree on all sorts of policy, but we ought to agree on how our money is accounted for. Sure. And Elias, you mentioned it a little bit, but how did the uh, the surplus, how did that hit your ears? Well, the, the big problem here, so what Patrick brings up, I mean, basically no state is, uh, no state is really accounting for their pension liabilities um, in the same way, which is, is a major problem. But what we're really seeing here that is bothering me, just using the methods that the state has been using, the governor is spending more than we're bringing in. And there, when the governor makes his budget, he's also estimating how much revenue he, we're going to be bringing in over the next year. And so essentially, he's assuming revenue stay flat um, and he's going to spend more than that. Um, and so, you know, really just on that basis, we're spending more. But also, the way that he's spending money, these aren't really, you know, childcare um, employee raises, those aren't really one time costs. So he's going to be using this one-time amount of money, this surplus that the state accumulated over the last uh, couple of years, he's going to be using that to basically expand or start new permanent programs. And um, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, we still have this issue coming in the next couple of years of this federal money is winding down. So there's basically this big um, Medicaid bomb that is coming where the federal government is pulling back all the money that they... Um, offered over the pandemic that is winding down the state's uh, medicaid program is um let me see uh, in 2020 the state spent roughly two billion general revenue on uh, the medicaid program uh this year we're expected to spend 3.8 billion and so you know you're looking at almost double in four years and next year uh general revenue wise the cost is going to be going up so there's a lot of costs going up a lot of expansion of government and so, you know, if you don't think we, uh, you know, running a balanced budget right now, next year, things are going to be even worse. So I wouldn't be too, I would not be too excited if I was the um, next governor of Missouri. It, it reminds me, my brother had a friend when I was growing up who got in a car accident, got a little bit of money as a result, and immediately put it down on an apartment because he wanted to move out of his parents' house. And, and my brother said to him, you're an idiot. You don't have a job. And, and sure enough, uh, two months in, he had run out of his settlement money and got evicted. Uh, I, I kind of expect that from my brother's idiot friends. Uh, it's a shame to see that uh, governors are are employing the same thinking. I want to go back to what Elias said about the, the teachers and, and so many of the, those 70% of school districts. I'm going to assume many of those are the smaller rural school districts 
just now taking the state funding as as the basis for how they're going to pay their teachers. I've been I've been saying for years at the Show Me Institute, years about how rural school districts essentially through the foundation formula they undertax themselves. First of all, the assessment system makes it difficult to tax. The agricultural assessment system is so so out of whack that it's hard for rural areas to really tax themselves properly to start with. And then we have this foundation formula that, to a large extent, takes income and sales taxes from the greater St. Louis and greater Kansas City area and transfers much of that to rural school districts. To uh, That's sort of how they are funded and to a large extent, whereas you have these school districts in the St. Louis and Kansas City areas that primarily fund themselves through property taxes. In a few cases, I'd say almost entirely fund themselves through local property taxes. So now you just have this situation being made even worse as the state has raised teachers' minimum teacher salaries with and where does the state get most of its money from income and sales taxes generated in the greater St. Louis and greater Kansas City area? And now you're just increasing the way they're funding rural school districts for in, in communities that just, if they, and I've said it over and over, and I get in a lot of trouble with some of our uh, supporters here, but I mean, if people want to pay low taxes to fu- to keep their services at the level that they're comfortable with, that's fine. But it gets frustrating taking more and more taxes out of Kansas City and St. Louis to subsidize those those choices. Yeah, and, and Eli- that's my rant. Elias, <laughs> um, I want to go to you first on this, just to talk about the politics of this situation. It was Governor Parson's final state of the state address, so even if it's just a list of priorities, things that he's outlined, does the weight of that list of priorities change at all when it's his final address? And as you mentioned, there's going to be a new guy there um, at the end of this year. So do you think that legislature, the legislature takes that into account when they're listening to this address? Uh, I hope so. Um, but you know, it's all, it's always kind of hard to, it's always kind of hard to say how forward looking, um, everyone in Jefferson city is necessarily going to be, um, I know that there have been discussions about, you know, how long term, you know, this federal money is going to be and, you know, what to do with, you know, teacher pay and all this stuff. I, I have not heard. I mean, I certainly understand why a governor, you know, on his way out is sort of trying to get that pre-K, you know, childcare, teacher pay, you know, those are, those are all very good things, you know, to say that, uh, you know, you accomplish, but when you don't really have a way to pay for those things and you know that the revenues aren't going to be coming in and the federal money is going to be pulling out, you know, it's a, it is certainly a way to set up a problem for someone else. Sure. And Patrick, we talk about this all the time in local government, whether it's mayors or city councils, sometimes they don't want to look at the long-term picture. They just want to go to the ribbon cutting. We've spoken about it before. Um, do you think that that happens at the state level with governors, that this might have been uh, more of a legacy speech for Parson, and whether it's the highway expansion or a stadium deal or something, he, he's, in, he's in legacy mode. So let's spend the money now, get the new thing, and we'll figure it out later. Gosh, I think you answered your own question. Uh, yes, uh, it is kind of the nature of uh, democratic politics. We all want to look good. And uh, even if you're a, a lame duck and heading out the door, you want to be able to, uh, you know, fluff your feathers and and tell the people about all the good things you did. It's, um, you know, it's a danger, perhaps, of, of lame duck politicians. Uh, 
but it reminds us at the Show Me Institute and everywhere else that the, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. We've got to make sure that um, their own priorities don't outweigh uh, you know, their responsibility for good government. And David, one more, I know... Well, just why, I was going to say, the price of liberty is compromised for me by my desire to take so many naps. <laughs> You have to be well rested. If right, you're preserve right. liberty. Nobody, you can't be sleepy. And frequently vigilant. I'm, so, I'm going to go with frequently vigilant. Sure, vigilant, except for <laughs> sometime in the early afternoon, a uh, ninety minute, ninety minute ish block. Um, David, I did want to give you an opportunity to uh, uh, perform another rant. I know you've already given us one, but in his speech, he also mentioned the governor also mentioned a uh, billion and a half dollars for broadband access across the state. And that's something that we've spoken about before. Um, when you hear that is still a priority after uh, all of these years of federal money being prioritized for broadband access, um, I don't know. What do you think that the, the do you think that's still going to be a priority moving forward? And do you think that should be a priority moving forward is my question. Well, it's, it's still going to be a priority because just it's a it's an easy priority. I mean, the federal government's put so much money into this. It's something that people can can uh, put a put a stake down and say we we did this. We helped a certain rural community get better broadband service. Let's leave aside the fact that you know the private mar- the private sector is perfectly capable of doing of doing all of this. Or to be fair, almost all of this. And I say almost all of it because indeed there are some really rural areas that some level of subsidy is probably necessary for them to get the type of internet access that we we all we all want. Let's leave aside for a second that that to an extent is the choice of people who live there. There are advantages of living in the city, advantages in the suburb, advantages in rural areas, and disadvantages to all three. So I don't know why we're always subsidizing each other's choices. Anyway, what I really there's ways to do this for broadband that are you know, fine and okay, and there's ways to do it harmfully. And the way to do it harmfully for cities and counties to start up their own municipal or county internet agencies. I mean, and that is something encouraged under the federal government's guidelines for this. They don't mandate that, but they want to see this money in rural areas going to, to the extent possible, Communities that might start up their own government-owned network or a gone, as it's called. So, I, our goal at Show Me Institute is really to not have any of these government-owned networks in Missouri. Kentucky tried a statewide internet system a decade or so ago. It's been a complete and total disaster. Shockingly enough, the people in Silicon Valley move faster than the bureaucrats in various state capitals around America. So they don't really keep up or manage it well. Uh, the Mackinac Center out of Michigan has done great work documenting the many failures of cities in Michigan that have, have done this. Um, so we, don't, we do have some of this in Missouri. We don't have a ton, thankfully. I commend the city of Columbia, which looked into this about a year ago and decided not to do it. So good for them. So as long as for Governor Parsons' priorities, I would just hope that it go to subsidizing alongside the private sector, really dis- the really truly rural areas that need the help and not putting anything out to government-owned networks, be they cities, counties, or, or anything else. That's the last thing the state needs. All right, moving from the state level to Kansas City. Patrick, um, 
you've been writing about, talking about, thinking about this uh, ordinance in Kansas City that the city council passed. Uh, it's called a. It's been called the source of income. Uh, ordinance. So can you kind of set the table for us? What is the idea behind this ordinance and what's the latest? So right now or pre-adoption, the way that uh, landlords and tenants um, negotiate is, uh, you know, a a tenant may come forward, present themselves to rent a property. The landlord uh, can consider, um, you know, their income. I don't want to rent to somebody who uh, doesn't make enough to pay the rent going forward, uh, may look at their criminal background, uh, may look at uh, previous evictions, uh, and may say, you know, you've got a Section 8 voucher from the federal government, but I really don't want to accept housing vouchers. And up until this point, that has been their um, prerogative to to make those decisions. Uh, The source of income ordinance in Kansas City and in some other markets uh, has said, no, landlord, you may not consider their income. You may not consider where they get their income. You may not consider previous evictions, criminal convictions, um, or or even complaints uh, uh, about property damage in whether or not you're going to rent to them in the future, which sounds ridiculous. And it is. Uh, you know, the goal of any landlord is to find good tenants, good neighbors who have a, a demonstrated history of paying rent, not only because it makes them good tenants, but because it keeps that landlord's rent down. If they have to uh, take higher risks, they're engaging in more expensive activity and and rent goes up. So Kansas City passed this source of income uh, ordinance, which banned a lot of these ways that landlords could refuse to rent. And, uh, you know, we're going to find out over the coming weeks and months what the what the impact is. Unfortunately, I fear that a lot of mom and pop uh, landlords, you know, who just have a handful of properties are going to leave the market because they don't have the deep pockets to defend themselves against accusations of discrimination or to do, you know, additional uh, uh, research and paperwork that is allowed. And the result, of course, of them leaving the market is that more uh, and greater percentage of landlords will be these big, I'm making air quotes here, out-of-state corporate owners that groups like KC Tenants and other groups on the left rail against. So what they've done is not made uh, housing more affordable for their constituents. They've put more costs on landlords, which, of course, is going to result in higher rents and perhaps fewer providers. Sure. And so do we know in practice what this what implementing this looks like i know in the in the star article it mentions that there's going to be a new position at city hall a landlord liaison um there's a there's going to be a number set up there's going to be someone whose job it is to go through and look at listings to make sure that they're um, cooperating with this ordinance but if i go to you if you're a landlord and i want to rent from you and then you say no i've rejected you what happens in the middle to be in compliance with this ordinance so there will be an amount of money available to uh, a tenant who feels they have been wronged or a prospective tenant uh, to sue. Um, There will be some funds made available to landlords to defend themselves against those suits or at least any kind of administrative hearing. And again, it just is going to encourage tenants to complain in a way that drives up the costs to landlords. And 
regardless of the intention, landlords facing higher costs are either going to increase rents or they're going to leave the market. Those are really the only two choices to them. And a lot of the, you know, uh, evictions that tenants face in Kansas City, I think 90% of them that go to court are for non-payer, non-pay uh, of rent. There really is no way to defend yourself against that. The judge is going to ask, have you paid your rent? No, you haven't. Case dismissed. So we can add all sorts of administrative obstacles and bells and whistles, and we can add more people uh, to the city hall uh, you know, employee roles. But basically, these are landlords who are trying to provide housing at a uh, you know responsible rate and make uh, some income for themselves, and we are needlessly complicating that. David, uh, what do we know about affordable housing in Kansas City? The the state of affordable housing, the amount of affordable housing, is there an issue there that needs to be addressed? No, there there isn't. That's not to say that you know Kansas City has public housing, and it, it should. It has its public housing agency. And the federal Section 8 program works well, and we should liberalize zoning throughout cities in Missouri to encourage the growth and development of more apartment buildings, condo buildings, housing of all types to address the the house to address housing costs generally. Do exactly what Minneapolis did. That's what. what is what will work in Kansas City or St. Louis. But by all measures, St. Louis and Kansas City are very affordable housing markets. And the testimony we've submitted to the city of Kansas City and the state of Missouri, we identify several of those. Anybody can Google this in a second. St. Louis, Kansas City, very affordable housing by every measure. So no, there's not some crisis. There's nothing that justifies going in and, and creating this new bureaucracy to further regulate landlords. The goal of KC tenants to listen to one of the speakers in the state hearing yesterday is to basically regulate landlords out of existence and make all all housing public. I'm quoting a, another witness at this hearing yesterday who I think is probably right. I'm not saying that's the goal of the politicians in Kansas City. That's the goal of the KC tenants organization. And it's just crazy how far we're going. So there's a bill in the state legislature uh, House Bill 2385, I believe, which is go- going to make make municipalities, prevent municipalities or counties from passing these sorts of income bills. Kansas City was the fifth city in Missouri to pass it, in- including the two largest now, St. Louis and Kansas City. And it's just terrible public policy. There's a few other suburbs of St. Louis that have uh, uselessly passed it. But uh, we just have to this is a very important bill that needs to needs to be passed here to prevent cities from thinking they have the right to control landlords' livelihoods and order them to participate in what is a voluntary federal program. Now, they should have no right to, to do this, and it's so frustrating to see so many elected officials you know, so giddy about ordering, ordering people how to operate their businesses and live their lives. David, in your testimony, you talk about housing affordability in St. Louis and Kansas City. Let me just ask you, was that um, within city limits or was that in the metropolitan area? I believe the listings we have are metropolitan area. So well, city, city limits are probably even less expensive in, in both. Well, I have, a, I have a, a memory of some research I was doing for Show Me years ago, and I don't remember if I published it. But it was allowed uh, a lot of uh, hand wringing about uh, the suspension of the LIHTC housing tax credits years ago. And people in Kansas City said, well, you know, we, we've got a housing crisis here. Uh, but in fact, it, it may have been a housing crisis within the city limits of Kansas City, but it did not exist in the metropolitan area. 
And of course, the result is that, well, people pick up and move to more attractive, more affordable housing. And so the the issue, to your point, isn't uh, a housing problem in the metro area. If it's a housing problem within the city, uh, this does not help it. In fact, this will have the result of chasing more people out of the city into the suburbs. And Patrick, I'm going to ask you kind of a vibes-based question here. You're in Kansas City. Um, this has been debated for weeks, if not months. Just generally, the public supportive. Um, obviously, it passed, but do you think that that was a uh, smaller group of supportive people, or was generally was there resistance to it? Could you get any kind of read on it? That's a great question. Uh, no, I'm not aware of the degree or strength of the support, but you know. Uh, it is always true in politics that there is always a small, motivated uh, core pushing for or against any legislation. You know, one of the big problems of government is is you get the small group that will benefit a great deal. Think of subsidies versus the large group that pays, you know, pennies and uh, the, the larger group that maybe feels they aren't impacted, don't take action, even if they think the policy is bad. So I think that's just the nature of politics. But to answer your question specifically, I do not know how widely supported uh, the SOI ordinance was. Well, that that political economy issue Patrick just raised is exacerbated even more at the local level when you have, you know, 20 percent turnout in local in local elections. So and that would be good turnout in local elections. So you have these small, active, loud groups have outsized power. At, at the local government level than at even more so than the national level. And, of course, Patrick's phrasing of the problem is completely and totally true at the national level as well. It's just even worse locally. Sure. All right. Well, uh, it sounds like it'll be an issue that we'll be talking about, especially at the as we track this um, bill in Jefferson City moving forward. So, um, all right. Moving to wrap up, as we do every week, uh, Elias, we'll start with you. What are you keeping tabs on over the next week? Well, besides seeing if uh, the Missouri Senate does anything, uh, the House, now that the governor has put out his budget, well, I say he's put out his budget. Uh, the website is not fully updated yet, so I, I will be looking out for that. But um, past that, it's the House's turn to pick things up, and so I'm very anxiously uh, awaiting these hearings in the next couple of weeks to sort of see if they're going to go along with some of the governor's um, bigger spending plans or if, you know, some of the, you know, the governor may be done, but many of the um, members of the legislature, you know, will be around for a while. And so they might not want to leave themselves such a big hole um, in the next uh, couple of years. And so I'll be uh, watching that and hoping that they move the budget uh, more quickly than in years past. We've been kind of brushing up against a deadline. So there's a lot, a lot to pay attention to um, besides the drama in the Missouri Senate. David? Well, it's February, so that means I gear up for the April local election season. Uh, it's always February, March, big time. I thought you were going to say St. Patrick's Day. We'll, we'll talk about that, too. Yes, I do love St. Patrick's Day. But there's, you know, there's some important things on the ballot around the state in April. Uh, certainly the biggest thing will be the sales tax vote in Kansas City to extend the sales tax and make it essentially explicitly for the Chiefs and Royals uh, to deal with new stadiums, expanded stadiums, whatever. That's going to be a huge issue we'll be talking about a lot for the next two months. 
other interesting things on the ballot that I'll, at some point, as we get closer to April, we'll, we'll make focal points of this podcast. Uh, in, in Perry County, in southeast Missouri, they've got a vote on whether to consolidate their 911 emergency system with neighboring St. Francis County. I think it's a great idea, but there's a surprising amount of opposition in Perry County. Everybody hates everybody hates change, no matter how much money change will save you while making the system better at the same time. Uh, there's a village disincorporation. Uh, peaceful, I think it's Peaceful Village in uh, Jefferson County. I hope I properly remember the name. Is voting to disincorporate. Things might not be so peaceful there right now. So I think that it's a very small village. I'd love to see it voluntarily go away. And Kirkwood's having another go at their uh, Transportation Development District sales tax uh, vote in April. So it'll be interesting to discuss as well. And I'm sure there's several more that I want people to bring to my attention. So you're watching a lot. Watching a lot. A lot on your plate. Uh, And Patrick. Well, I'm not watching as much, but I want listeners to appreciate, uh, because they cannot see David, that uh, he delivered none of that from notes. It is all top of mind. The man has his finger on the various pulses of local Missouri politics. Uh, You all should be honored to have him uh, uh, deal with these issues. I am interested in course of uh, the source of income ordinance we discovered or we discussed a few minutes ago and, and whether or not the state legislature will act to preempt the cities. I got very excited because a state senator introduced what I thought was an ordinance to reintroduce dueling to the legislature. I found out it was not an ordinance. It was, in fact, just a draft rule change. And really, uh, despite the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's breathless editorial on it, it was a joke. Um, uh, Obviously, the stadium tax in Kansas City, uh, I'll be watching that. I am also interested to see what happens with this uh, initiative petition reform that is again working its way through the legislature. I have some experience with um, initiative petitions in Missouri. I think there are opportunities uh, for reform, but I uh, don't know that I personally will like what um, what they put out. But again, it's, it's a matter of time to see what they finally agree on. Just want to, as I said on the radio a few days ago, as for dueling, I will do a po- I will duel anyone any time on policy in the state of Missouri, but people need to know that in dueling, my weapon of choice is breakdancing. <laughs> All right. Uh, as always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. A uh, lot to keep track of. We'll talk to you next week. Elias, David, Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.